Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today it's a film special, right in time for the Oscars. On the show today I speak with Charles Finch, entrepreneur, party host, and editor of a new film called A Rabbit's Foot. We also pay a visit to At The Movies, a wonderful gallery in London's Marlebone, selling original vintage film posters. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about A Rabbit's Foot, the new film titled by Charles Finch, legendary film, entertainment and brand entrepreneur. The bookish title is a delight for all movie lovers. Every issue covers a theme. The most recent one is The Power of Film. The previous ones were an in-depth look at Italian and French cinema. We spoke about A Rabbit's Foot and also about his famous Oscar parties. Here is my chat with Charlie. Charles Finch, welcome to Monaco 24, to The Stack. We're here to talk about your fantastic uh, film magazine, A Rabbit's Foot. But first of all, Charles, as a method of introduction, you've been very close to the film industry for years now. Did you always wanted to do like a print product about the industry that you've worked on? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And it actually, for once, comes out of sort of a necessity in a way. Because in my time in the movie business, obviously, there's always been very successful brand to brand, business to business, I'm sorry, business to business publications, like Variety or the Hollywood Reporter or Screen. And to some extent, even Cahiers du Cinema is quite inward looking or was even when. But over the years, those premier magazines, studio magazine, they've all ceased existing other than the business to business ones. And so I felt that there was a definite hole in the market and also more than a hole in the market because nobody starts a print publication in 2023 or 22 in our case with a sort of business plan to suddenly you know, make a huge amount of money. You have to do these things because you feel great passion for whatever the subject is. So number one, there was nothing remaining in the market that I felt really was about filmmaking and, or at least had filmmaking at its core. And I see a rabbit's foot as sort of film at the center, but really art and culture as a sort of as brothers and sisters sitting alongside it. And as the magazine grows, actually, the book part of the magazine will grow, as will the sort of story part, which in this issue you see It's already taking more space with the stories of Africa, etc. So, and then the art part. So I think it'll balance out more so it is more culturally full. And there isn't really that that exists either. So I thought, anyway, to cut a long story short, I thought, I thought, my God, why is there not a publication that is celebrating work that is so important to me? And I love, I was telling you before we started, Charles, I love the, the scale of it. I mean, it feels quite ambitious. I hear, I'm here with the latest issue, issue number three. It's almost 300 page, you know, and, yeah. and that's fantastic, you know, because for me, you know, I love film and I see the magazines becoming quite slimmer and slimmer. And sometimes no wonder people go digitally, but this is something that you need to hold, right? I mean, it's, it's heavy. Tell us, did you want that as well? Well... Uh, <laughs> there's a hint in the name of the job that is prescribed to me, 
which is editor. And I'm not particularly good at the editing bit. So it probably should actually be considerably thinner. This issue this time of year will in fact be the largest issue. And it's, you know, as you know, it's got Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone and Darren Aronofsky, Ken Loach, Nabeen Labaki, Todd Field, Ai Weiwei, Abel Farah, I mean, you know, Don McCullough, there's a huge amount of people and probably a more seasoned editor because I've never edited a thing in my life. See, most, I mean, I've written for a lot of publications, as you know, and written movies and stuff, but I've never edited anything. So a more seasoned editor would probably say, listen, you know, commission less, be a little bit more focused. I think we'll always try and have, you know, really 30 good stories anyway in the physical publication. The digital monthly publication will be more focused in terms of one profile, what's happening around town in art, film and culture and much, much more focused, but still on the same theme. And we'll still do a big September issue. As you said, it's about 300 and something pages. Anyway, there's a lot to say. So it's hard to resist getting carried away, swept away. Please don't start editing too much because I love that. I love the number of pages, the indulgence of it all, because it is physically is a very beautiful product as well. And Tell us a bit more about the basics. How often the magazine will come out? And every issue has a theme, right? I know you explored French cinema, Italian cinema, and now the power of film and how cinema can change things as well. Well, so the physical printed version will come out four times a year and with some sort of structured reasoning. This issue come, came out in February so that it would coincide with the Oscar BAFTA the award season, if you want, and which will carry it through to the Cannes Film Festival in May. And so the next issue will be in May, and then we'll do a September issue so that we're sort of in parallel to what's happening in the big points in the movie or in the entertainment world, and as well in the art world, because they tend to follow each other, these things. And then the digital will be, there's a digital platform now, www.a-rabbitfoot.com. That's at the moment you get four articles for free and then you have to subscribe. We're changing that. So there'll still be four articles from the written publication and then you must subscribe to buy the books and get the full content. But the website alone will stand as a standalone free with its own monthly information, with its own long form stories so that, you know, people can have a view of both. And maybe there'll be a fifth one every now and then if I suddenly decide to do a rabbit's foot car journey. You know, I think, so the bigger aim of a rabbit's foot, the brand, if you want, for want of a better word, is for it to publish ultimately other work as well beyond the magazine. So I, my desire is, I live in a world where there are a lot of screenplays that are not realized. For example, Christopher Hampton this morning was talking about Nostromo, his script from the Joseph Conrad novel which he worked on with David Lean and he and Spielberg later, and it's never been made into a movie, and I probably think it won't be made into a movie for a number of reasons. So I wouldn't mind publishing that. It has actually been published, but I would have published something like that. And as Quentin Tarantino has now adapted from writing movies, he's also writing books. And so I think, so there's interesting, sort of a bigger vision to this. So the magazine, the events around the magazine, we just had our Power of Film event, which is about, this theme was about 
and this this issue was about how film can create a cultural debate because it's seen by a much wider audience than than usually books or theater today it can have such a cultural impact so we celebrated that by two days of talks and discussions in london with important filmmakers like ken loach and and other people like that. So I think I'm opening the door to being another publishing house that will look to cross over people working in movies and art into into a printed word as well. That's fantastic. And 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 tell us a bit more, Charles. You're an entrepreneurial man. And what about in terms of the business side? I see the magazine has some, you know, not you know a lot of ads that would kind of bother us to read. But you have Chanel, you have Hermes as well. You have very important uh, brands collaborating. How does that process work? Do they also help in the making of the magazine too? No, they, they don't help in the making of the magazine. But I mean, I had a long term. So my world is divided up into five sort of uh, little you know, sections, if you want. And the first section was always film. So I have a film company that I just finished co-producing Sofia Coppola's new movie, uh, Priscilla, through my deal at Columbia but with Lorenzo Mielli and Fremantle and his company, The Apartment. So, you know, we're always making movies, developing movies anyway as a producer. And I started the business as a writer, then as a director, and then ultimately a managed artist and then became a film producer. So that's one sort of silo of my life that has a staff and is very, you know, is, I'm very protective of. It's not, I wouldn't say, I don't have, the desire to make that into a big film company or I would have, you know, raised the money to do that or gone on, on a journey like that. More that company's positioning is to do sort of exquisite films that are more art house or independent and one or two big studio movies as well, which is why I'm in business with Columbia. So there's a sort of bridge. I also sit on the board of Mubi and I'm a shareholder in Mubi.com which is probably the most important, is the most important streaming platform for independent film today. So film is really central to my life. So that's why the extension of that interest came into this publication. And then the second part of my life was the representation of talent, which I don't do anymore. But for many, many years, I, I had Kate Blanchett, John Malkovich, and, and Willem Dafoe, many stars. So when I got out of that business 15 years ago, I still retained the other part of my representation business which was the brand marketing part because i'd become so interested you know almost quarter of a century ago 25 years ago in how actors and brands and entertainment companies and brands could work together either on commercial opportunity or in the funding of entertainment or so those long-term relationships like i've had with chanel or other Hermes or other brands Obviously, they're going to be a first port of call, and there's a long, decades-long trust factor involved, which is more and more important today. So they felt very comfortable that I would do something good, and Chanel actually bravely supported it from the beginning. So they were the first people. And so when you have Chanel as the first person, then probably other, and Hermes is the second person, I mean, that's pretty damn good, isn't it? And from there you can build, and we have Armani now and Montclair and, and Prada and other people like that. So I think I've also found that I never approached it as a straightforward advertising project to me. It was always, you know, these are brands that are companies that I've had really long history with that are really 
genuinely interested in arts and artisanal work. So I had to, I have to feel that there's, I mean, you couldn't, Hermes is, and Chanel, they're sort of, are they commerce only? No, they are really artisanally both, you know. So I think there's a lot of similarities I felt comfortable and they felt comfortable with me. And that helps with the costs of, of printing and publication. It doesn't cover all of the costs, obviously. So we fund that internally through our own, our own internal investment. There are no outside investors. It's all funded in, by me, basically. Well, that's fantastic. And, and, and it's about trust, as you said it before. And tell us about the award season. I know you're, I mean, you're super connected with the world of BAFTAs and the Oscars as well. Tell us, what does it mean? Because I know, do you host parties for the Oscars? How, how excited are you for this year? What can you tell us about it? Oh, first of all, I have to be honest, I absolutely hate parties. Really? <laughs> it became incredibly well known for these two parties a year. <laughs> But they really give me enormous, enormous anxiety, much more so the one in London, the pre-BAFTA party, which even a book was done about it by Asseline. I was a young guy in Hollywood and I was trying to write and direct movies, make movies. And a friend of mine was very close to Michael Chow, the restaurateur, and who of course had known my mother and father and so on and so forth. And I was literally st almost starving to death, really penniless cat, collecting cash between writing assignments and, you know. And he was interested in writing a movie or having a movie written about his life or his family life. And through this mutual friend, reintroduced us. I mean, I hadn't seen him since I was a child. And, and he said, look, I'll pay you to work on a script with me, but, you know, I'll also trade you food, you know, like in the old days with with you know artists were often fed by restaurants and he said look you can have lunch in my restaurant once a week or every day if you're alone which was mr charles in beverly hills and i i mean i really was broke I, they, somebody had stolen the convertible top of my volkswagen beetle and i couldn't afford to replace it so it was sunburnt or soaking wet it just depended on the weather <laughs> And so I started having these lunches at Mr. Chow. Now, it wasn't so difficult in those days. This is a long time ago, 30 years ago. It wasn't so more than 30 years ago. Actually, I was maybe 24, 25, you know, and I'm 60. So 35 years ago. So it wasn't so difficult in those days to say to people, you know, come and have a long lunch. And especially if it was free. And what happened was that out of that, you know, I sort of created a, a sort of coterie of people who like to come and have lunch with me. And I'd have a dinner in my little apartment, which I'd cook. And then every other week I'd have a big lunch. And one year I said, listen, you know, maybe I could give a party at the Academy after uh, the night before the Academy Awards. And many people called me who were high up in the business because I was a kid, you know, and said, listen, you're not allowed to do that. And uh, I won't mention any names, but a couple of them are dead, you, you know, you're not allowed to do that. We don't want actors out late at night and Saturday night is sacrosanct because otherwise the movie stars won't turn up for Oscar. That was the idea. And it always had been kind of Hollywood law that you couldn't do anything until the night of the awards, which is why Swifty Lazar and people like David Niven and so on and so forth had had those parties on Oscar night. Anyway, to Hello, long story short, I said, you know, what have I got to lose? And I had a party at Mr. Chow's on the night before Oscar, and it was fantastic. And word got around 
that you know this was going to be a hell of a party and so we had this unbelievable party until like four o'clock in the morning when the beverly hills police department closed us down but with every movie star at the time and soup properly glamorous party and we sort of danced on the tables and had a wild time and and of course they they turned up to the oscars anyway the next day and but it became a thing so i started that way so then years later and i move it around after mr chow was sick of me getting free food from him <laughs> and then i went to an italian restaurant for a number of years and so on and then i joined the william morris agency and they sent me to london and when I was in London, I realized pretty soon, I think the first year, that there was no party for BAFTA. I mean, even on the night. And they had the awards up in Islington, and there was a restaurant, I think, called Nell's or something like that. We'd have to look it up. And I said, you know, this is ridiculous. And I had some people in town. I think there's a few big actors in town who were friends of mine from Hollywood, and they had nowhere to go. So we did the first one in Islington, and it was fantastic and great fun. And then I did another one at Annabelle's and something. I used to pay for it myself. And, you know, it was getting, you know, William Morris didn't want to pay for it. Nobody wanted to pay for it. But um, then I left William Morris. I'd done the party a few times. And I also did one at Cannes. And, and uh, I was being interviewed by the Financial Times about what was on my desk and stuff like that. And I said, well, there's always a Chanel number no. five on my desk because Karl Lagerfeld had been so so sweet to me in making my, in costuming my second movie, which had Sharon Stone was in the movie and, and he dressed her and he became a friend. And so in honor of him, I always had a Chanel number no. five on the desk. And he, by the way, in the, had just joined Chanel. He'd only been Chanel four years when he did the costumes for my movie. Which film was it? Where Sleeping Dogs Lie. Ah, nice. And so, you know, he was on a, very new journey anyways, by the way. And Chanel had not been in such a good place when he took it over. So I had that long history and and the head of press in London called Joe Allison, who's still there and, and a friend, called me up and said, listen, I'd love to come and chat to you and you have this party and we could, you know, we could sponsor it. And it started like that. So then Chanel started to be, was at first a sponsor, became a partner in the party and and then then they said you know can we do your la one with you as well and now irritatingly enough people say is that the chanel party it drives me crazy <laughs> because it feels like it's a branded party then and it's not at all it's a private party chanel brings some people they've been an amazing partner and then i have this deep anxiety because somebody else is uh, sponsoring it i now have an anxiety about who's going to come Whereas before, I really didn't give a fuck. They had to be friends of mine. They had to be really interesting people and rather than famous or rather than, and now it's become, you know, something slightly more fixed in the, in the calendar and there's a lot more pressure on it. But I, I try not to think about it. I've always had an Oscar season, you know, I've always had very well-known people and also very well-known people from business and art and also my dear friends whose careers sometimes have been up and sometimes have been down. The Beverly Hills Hotel is pretty important to me because my father died there. It was the first posthumous Oscar. My father was Peter Finch, who won five BAFTAs for Best Oscar and was nominated several times. And then five BAFTAs for Best Performance, mm -hmm. uh, male performance in, the, in England. And then he won the Academy Award for Network. But he'd already been 
obviously nominated for a town like alice and a bunch of other movies and a suddenly bloody sunday and what a film network as well i mean it's amazing so to be honest with you i always feel a bit like i kind of grew up in in a very creative world and i mean the beverly hills hotel particularly the hotel du cap in the south of france you know i was very fortunate in having quite a glittery childhood even though it was completely mad and completely you know you never knew what was going to happen it was not a conventional childhood and that comes with good things and bad things but the beverly hills hotel was something very special to me like the ducat because there were all these crazy people frank sinatra and dino martin and sammy davis and and then over the years i've seen all the new stars become part of the Beverly Hills Hotel and the Hotel du Cap. So to me, I felt very, I feel very safe there. And I felt very safe at the old Annabelle's because it was in London owned by Mark Burley. And I feel very safe. And then I was, then I feel very safe now at Hartford Street in London because it's owned by Mark's son. And I try to choose places that people know. I try and choose people that know each other, but I'm always welcoming new, new artists into my life. Thank you very much, Charlie. Issue 3 of A Rabbit's Foot is out now. And now we stay in the world of print, but not necessarily a magazine or newspaper. I've always admired film posters. As a kid, I used to cheekily ask the cinema owners to give me a copy of an old poster. It seems Lisa Teze understands that very well. She's the owner of the gallery and shop at the movies in Marlebone, selling original vintage film and movie posters, from a pricey Vertigo original to posters of newer films like Top Gun Maverick. We had a wonderful chat at her shop about the beauty of film posters and what are the most popular ones that she's been selling. <music> I went to the Antiquarius on King's Road, which was a lovely antique centre opposite Waitrose, which is currently now um, Anthropology. And I took a little unit inside. I think I was paying about six, seven hundred pounds a month rent. And I was there a lot, working every day, you know, nine to five, weekends, everything. And actually, one of my most rewarding experiences, probably, in that little unit was my first ever Christmas Eve working. So I'm there, you know, in the shop. It's about, I don't know, 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, just thinking, God, all my friends are, whatever, getting ready for Christmas, and here I am working. My life is so bad, this and that. And all of a sudden, who walks in? It was Johnny Depp. Wow. So he was in London filming uh, Sleepy Hollow at the time. And I was, like, just looking at him. I was like, is this really him? Nah, I can't be, whatever, whatever. So he sits down, and at the time, everyone was smoking everywhere. So he sat down by the desk, and he made his rollie, and you know, chose a few pieces, and I'm thinking, wow, what's going on here? Is this really possible? So I didn't have a credit card machine in the store at the time. I had to go to the main one in the antique center, and I just always remember the picture of his, like, gold visa card with, you know, Johnny C. Depp. And so that was really, really exciting, very rewarding. He bought a couple of pieces, and then I remember that day calling a friend of mine. Well, my friends always used to come to the store and visit, You'd be like, oh my God, Johnny Depp just came in, whatever. And she goes, okay, I'm coming to visit you. And uh, there was a Starbucks right next to the shop. So at the time, everyone was into those strawberry muffins. And she walked in, got a quick muffin, and saw Johnny Depp in the um, queue. And goes, oh my God, I heard you were just at my, Lisa's, uh, my friend Lisa's store. Did you buy some great posters? Whatever. So that, that was quite fun. 
Then uh, a couple of years later, I took a unit outside on Kings Road. Then eventually they knocked the antique centre down when it became anthropology. We moved to Carnaby Street, had a fabulous store. Didn't really love the location because we couldn't sell the exciting, sort of expensive Steve McQueen, Bridget Bardot stuff. It was a lot more like cheap and cheerful, which didn't really interest me because I liked the collectability of it. Then I thought I'd go back to King's Road. We started supplying Harrods and Selfridges for six years, which was also a lot of fun. And then when the Qataris took over and the lady we supplied at Harrods went back to Spain, I opened around the corner on Thayer Street. We were there for nine, ten years, which was great. And then uh, Corona happened and whatnot. My lease came to an end. And that was a wonderful opportunity to move into this store. I was going to ask Lisa, who are your customers? I'm sure there's people who are collectors, you know, they love cinema, but I'm sure somebody perhaps have a passion for a specific film and they might say, sorry, do you have, for example, have here the Spirited Away poster or... Sure. So, you know, I guess poster collecting is based on a naive attraction to a combination of nostalgia, personal association, film, design, appeal, all of that. And I guess, you know, movies cover a whole array of decades and genres and, you know... So our collectors can be anyone from uh, taxi drivers, postmen, to actors, writers, normal people, people looking to uh, furnish their homes, decorators. They make amazing gifts. So, you know, maybe like, hey, this is uh, the first movie my dad took me to, or I watched with my girlfriend, boyfriend, this, that. They're a lot of fun. And nowadays, they actually have become really, really collectible. In my experience, the craziest jump I can remember was so the original British poster for Doctor No, 1962. I remember in 98 buying our first one for like 600 pounds, selling it for 800, 1200, 1600, 2000, two and a half, three, three and a half. I thought this poster is maxed out. It continued to go on to four, five, six, seven. I'm like, wow. People would be like, is this poster still going up? I said, I don't know. I don't think so. Eight, nine, ten. Long story short, last ones we sold really in dead mint condition, because condition is everything. Those two fetched about 20,000 maybe two, three, four years ago, two, three years ago. And then recently now at auction, they've fetched uh, 50-something, 70-something, and 90-something. Crazy. So unless someone walks in, you know, with a box of stuff and they don't really know what we have, it's impossible for us to buy that now, you know? So basically, movie posters uh, were never intended to be collected by the general public. Their main purpose was to advertise the movie that they were designed to promote. And, you know, within 60 seconds or less, the sort of key art was meant to make me or you or anyone go, you know, to the movies, to the box office and spend our money and watch the film. And then because studios would turn out, like, on average, a movie a week, archiving them was never really a priority. So when a film's run had ended, usually the posters were returned to the distributor and then they'd just sort of like chuck them. So that's what sort of creates the rarity. And prices vary depending on film title, rarity, overall collectability and desirability, condition, nationality, format, etc. So the, the right ones can be really, really collectible. Uh, everything goes up, you know, a little bit. Three, five, ten percent a year, but some of the really good rare ones, more, they can be 10, 15, 20, 30 percent, depends how difficult it is to find or replace it. So we don't 
just pull out of prices out of nowhere. There is a proper uh, legitimate market for this art form, like for uh, paintings or photography or furniture. And I guess nowadays, you know, if it's too good to be true, it is. So if you're finding a Star Wars poster, original 1977, on the internet for 250 pounds and it's in great condition, either you're really, really lucky or most likely it's a fake, it's a reproduction, whatever. I was going to ask you something about trends as well, because on the other side here of the gallery you have the first, well, the original Top Gun poster. And of course, everybody's interested in Top Gun suddenly because of the success of Top Gun Maverick. Do you see that changes as well, depending on what's, I don't know if there's an, an interesting Oscar nominee as well. Uh, but yeah, the Top Gun is actually looking very beautiful there. Yeah, we, we, we definitely do see that. So, I mean, Top Gun 1986, probably one of the most iconic 80s movies. We saw that when Maverick came out, Uh, there was definitely a huge resurgence in interest in both the original 1986 Top Gun and Maverick. And Maverick also was very interesting because the film was first meant to come out in 2020 and then it got delayed because of COVID until later and later. And finally, it was released in 2022 in cinemas. So actually, there was a series of posters that were designed to promote those releases that were never actually used because the film was never released in, let's say, 2020 and 2021. And those are also a piece of history and a reminder of what sort of happened in that period. So yes, when there's, uh, let's say, Bond anniversaries, recently in 2022 was the 60th anniversary of Bond, I think uh, October, September, October, November. So that also created a buzz for sure. And of course, you know, Roger Moore passing, the big actors and whatnot, yeah, they do bring attention back to. One thing that's fascinating, when I actually came to the shop a few weeks ago, there was the poster of Joss 2, I think. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because sometimes you can have an amazing poster. The film might not have been like the best, but sometimes the poster is actually incredible. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, um, Jaws 2, that's a great example. Mm. I mean, Jaws 1, probably one of the most profound thrillers in history. I mean, who hasn't seen it and who is not scared at one point to go back into the water? And you, you have it here we as well. We have it here. We have a few examples of it here. <laughs> and I mean, Jaws 2, I guess, you know, it's got that fantastic tagline, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water. You know, I think that's brilliant. So, you know, uh, that's a good point because some people love to collect uh, based on the movie or the personal association or the actors in it. And then other people, like myself, for example, love the artwork. You don't need to have seen the film. It doesn't matter. So in my collection, one of my favorite are this big poster for um, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, 1958, I want to say, with art by this guy, Reynold Brown. You've seen the reproductions uh, all over the place. I've never seen the film, have no interest in seeing the film, but just love the movie. Uh, another one similar would be Tobor the Great. And I guess many um, sort of... I mean, I love the artwork from uh, lots of 1950s, well, even 30s, 40s, 50s, sort of teenage delinquent exploitation, exploitation, cars, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all this stuff that the posters are so arty and atmospheric, but who cares about watching the film? So, so, so you know, in essence, these film posters are actually historical documents, if you wish, because they were never intended to be collected. They're the actual ones that were used in the cinemas. And I guess today they are tangible reminders of our favorite films. You see what I mean? So if we look at this uh, Into the Dragon quickly, you see 73 
268. Well, first two numbers is the year of the film, 1973. And 268 means in 1973, it was the 268th film to come out that year. You see? And so many of the American ones up until the mid-'80s that went on mainstream release have this number. Um, and they often call that the NSS number, National Screen Service number, because it was the National Screen Service that were the main centralized distributors of the posters from the studios to the cinemas. So in the case of um, Enter the Dragon, from Warner Brothers to all the cinema theaters that would have been showing Enter the Dragon in 1973. And then when the films run it ended, they just chuck it, either give it back to the NSS or Warner Brothers, and then make way for the next film poster. I guess nowadays we see a lot of people in this gallery. I mean, we could just stock the gallery with five things. It would be Bond, Star Wars, Godfather, Audrey Hepburn, but mainly in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and Steve McQueen in Le Mans. That's all we need. And you Scarface. Know? And Scarface, yes, of course, <laughs> and Scarface. But, you know, it's a lot of fun. They're colorful, decorative, collectible. Yes, I can say that we, we see them as huge investments, can give you loads of examples where things have multiplied, and the truth is they're genuinely actually not going down. I mean, we just see constantly rising a bit and a bit and a bit, and it costs us more to buy them, and you know, that's just the way it's going. My question is, do you, do you still feel it's an art that's still happening, the newer films as well? Or, or do you think, oh, the golden era is over? Or, or, or I don't know, are you optimistic? Because well, you do have some uh, re more I mean, recent films here as well. In terms of art forms, I think the most gorgeous posters were the ones done in like the uh, 50s, 60s, sort of the hand-painted artwork, and then the text applied on top of them afterwards. Uh, then in the 90s, the way of doing a film poster changed to sort of like computer-generated graphics, you know, Tom Cruise's head, Mission Impossible 4. You know, uh, Fast and Furious 11. So I think now many cinemas are going digital, so perhaps you're losing a bit of the actual film poster piece of paper and the art itself. Having said that, in, I think it was 2019 when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, Tarantino commissioned a fantastic poster artist called Steve Chorney to do the main designs, and he actually took one of my favorite film poster artists, a guy called Renato Cassero, who lives in Spain, out of retirement to do much of the artwork in that film. So, I mean, yeah, we hope it can be revived. Nowadays, we see a lot of interest. I guess the modern classics would be La La Land, Gladiator, Senna, oh, Senna. Whiplash. Yeah, yeah, yeah Senna is getting a lot in there. Thank you very much, Lisa. Do visit at themovies.uk and who knows, you'll find the perfect poster for you. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But before I go, a little song for you from the film Scarface. This is Push It to the Limit. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's goodbye from me.